Hi, I am Father Russell Pollitt from the Jesuit Institute, and you are tuned in to Radio Veritas, where we bring you the good news for a change. Time is now 15 minutes past seven on Radio Veritas, and a very good morning to Father Russell Pollitt. Good morning, Russell. Good morning, Father Emil. It's a great day. Are you back in Johannesburg? I have been for a little while now. Okay, I always think of you outside of Johannesburg with your busy schedule. <laughs> yes, well, Russell. well, at the moment I'm, I'm in Johannesburg. Well, enjoying this, uh, this uh, summer that uh, came upon us instead of spring. Beautiful, beautiful, lovely weather. Russell, great news. Now we got this new motor pro- proprio from Rome and about this, uh, the mass translations, the, uh, the, the responsibility now resting on the local bishops' conference in, instead of Rome. I'm sure you've got a comment about this because I certainly received this news with great joy. Yes, you know, um, this whole question of translation has sort of been a political football for a long time. Mm. Um, we, we need to go back, you know, when the Mass was first translated into English um, after the Second Vatican Council, that translation was the one that we used right up until 2011, I think it was, uh, when the new one was implemented. But in between that time, in 1997, the translation was produced, and a well-known South African was very much part of that, who had been himself part of the whole uh, translation uh, of the first um, uh, English translation of the Vatican II, and that was Archbishop Dennis Hurley. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they produced this text. They worked for many years. In actual fact, I think that they worked for over 20 years on uh, that 1997 translation. Right. What they tried to do was pick up on every single Sunday, for example, the uh, sort of symbolism uh, of the gospel, uh, pick up on the, or whatever the gospel was, so that the prayers of the Mass matched the gospel and things like that. Right. Then uh, what happened was there was a kind of coup that took place. And we had a change in the rules of translation, which means that the translation of 1997 was completely scotched overnight. And they said that we will no longer be using what we call dynamic equivalence, which means that you translate from the original into a a more kind of uh, colloquial English that, that people... English people will be familiar with. It's a dynamic equivalent, not word for word. I mean, you can never translate word for word. This, this is a, you know, a completely uh, silly to think you can. But they decided, just after that, that they would, uh, Rome decided, Rome, whoever that was, this uh, Vox Clara, Isel, decided, which is the International Commission for English and the Liturgy, they decided that they wouldn't do that, that they would go for much more direct translation uh, from from the Latin, and that's why we got what we got. Right. So Benedict changed those translation rules, if I if I remember correctly. Um, anyway, now Pope Francis has said we uh, he's, he's given the whole. He hasn't changed those those rules yet for translation, in the sense that he in, he instituted a committee that would look at the whole question of translations of, of that liturgical authentication, which is a document that said how things should be translated. There's an investigation into that. But what he has done in the meantime is say that, as you said, local bishops' conferences are now responsible for the translation of the Mass wherever they find themselves. He's, he's, he's using this uh, principle of subsidiarity, which is 
which is something the church has always done and was very strong at Vatican II. And many people feel that after uh, Vatican II, there was a huge big movement to try and pull back uh, authority from bishops and bishops' conferences and centralize everything in Rome. Well, this is a move where Pope Francis is definitely decentralizing and saying to local bishops, you're in charge of translations. Once you've done translations that you're happy with, send them to Rome for approval. But he's no longer saying that Rome has to do the translations. This does mean it is possible that some conferences may decide to go back to the uh, translation which we had before or do a new translation. I suspect this won't happen. But it seems from what I've read and from what liturgical experts are saying, it could mean that. Technically, bishops could decide as a conference to go back to, uh, for example, what we had, or maybe even consider that 1997 translation. Yeah. Well, I would certainly hope something like that happens because, uh, I mean, I, I, I continue just to... <laughs> I growl inside myself every time I have to use this new translation. Sometimes I get to the end of the preface, I say to myself, now what on earth was that about? <laughs> yeah, you know, but the problem is as well that this translation, it's not, it's not just the content and the way things are said. Yeah. It's just simply bad English. Yes, Exactly. Exactly, yeah. So you've got two problems. I mean, I think there's a theological problem with it. Uh, You know, I think that comes out all over the place. But we have just plain bad English. Just this last weekend, I I had uh, four masses on Sunday. I was helping out. And I noticed, uh, I can't remember where it was exactly, but I noticed uh, that, you know, the first four or five lines of one of the prayers or something like that was was completely unpunctuated. You know. yeah, and know. then when the punctuation did appear, it wasn't the full stop, it was a comma. Yeah. And I thought to myself, what am I supposed to do? Take a breath to read this whole paragraph with one <laughs> comma. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, Russell, one wonders what will happen now. I mean, will, the, will the bishops in South Africa say, well, if, if priests want to, or if we're going to do this in South Africa, we'll just go back to that translation we used for 40 years. Why not? I'd be very happy to do that. I have no problem with the previous translation. Yeah, you see... The, the the big problem here is, and I think, and I think we're moving to a space where people are going to start to admit this. Yeah. And I think that some people did at the time it was changed. Yeah. This translation business, mm. it seems to me, if one reads it and analyzes the whole move to translate, mm. unfortunately, was not done for pastoral good, for liturgical good, for the good of the language, mm. or anything like that. Mm. The real issue was people with power. It was a political game going on. And I think this translation was the result of a political football. Mm. And therefore, when you have that sort of thing happening, you never get the best. Because rather than setting out to do a good job, we had people setting out to prove a point or to try and uh, uh, basically bolster an ideology of how things should be. Very good point. Good point you're making there. Well, anyway, let's wait and see. So, uh, but uh, y- you feel a bit hopeful? Um, yeah, I think, and you know, I mean, I, I, I think that it's very interesting that the Pope has done this. Um, and you know, um, there's been no reaction yet, as far as I can make out, from Cardinal Sarah, who's in charge of uh, the the Congregation for Divine Worship. Mm. What I found fascinating is the whole way the Pope did this. It seems that, from what I've read. 
he did not uh, really consult to that congregation for divine worship. This motu proprio came straight from him. It looks like he worked around the Roman Curia to do this. Um, you know, we know that Cardinal Sorrell, who's in charge of the Congregation for Divine Worship, is someone who is seen as uh, a major opponent of Pope Francis. Yeah. Uh, he has uttered a number of times things in stark contradiction to what the Pope himself has said. Mm. Um, some people are saying, how much longer can he remain in that job when he seems to contradict the Pope? Uh, mm. You know, mm. he hasn't reacted to this. I mean, just, uh, just uh, you know, a year ago now, he was calling for for priests to, to turn to what they call liturgical Eastern and say Mass with their back to the people. Yes. Uh, and the Pope had to say, this is not going to happen. Right. Um, so this is going to be interesting to see the way that this whole thing plays out. Mm. But there's a real sense that Francis, you know, is, with the folks that he does have, is a pastoral man. And he realizes, yeah, this thing is a pastoral problem. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad that he's realized it because I, I wonder if it, if if other languages have had the same kind of problems that we've had. But you see, they haven't. So, so this is the other issue: yeah. why the English conferences all over the world, yeah. South Africa included, yeah. ran to this new translation, which it seems was put together very fast. We know it's a shoddy translation. We yeah. know that it's not uh, proper English. Yeah. Why they ran to do it? Uh, is, is a question that I, no one's able to answer. Mm. Because if one looks at other conferences like the French, like the Germans, like the Italians, yeah. the Germans said, we're not changing, we're not, we're not going to change the, our, our current translation into one uh, you know, of almost uh, trying to translate directly from the Latin. They just refu- they refused to do it. Okay. The Italians said, oh yeah, we're doing it, we're doing it, and they never put pen to paper as the Italians do. Mm. You know, the French uh, landed up, uh, you know, uh, having a big debate about it. So, in effect, what's happened is the French, the Germans, and the Italians now have the uh, ability to translate into, you know, the vernacular, German, French, whatever, yeah. and, and decide on it themselves. They're not going to have a translation imposed upon them by Rome. Right, but the yeah. English bishops' conferences, for some reason, mm. felt that they had to say, yes, amen, straight away. Mm. And the thing... I sometimes wonder if we have what we have because it was it was also rushed mm. and it wasn't thought through. Mm. If you think about that 1997 translation, which Archbishop Hurley said, you know, they'd worked on for more or less 20 years, yes. and all of a sudden, you know, in five or six years, we we got what we got. Yeah. Um, you know, one has to wonder um, mm. um, what, what was really going on there. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, you know, in a way, I read somewhere in, in a translation of a German paper the other day that. Uh, <laughs> One of the German bishops said, "Yes, we've been vindicated." <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. That's quite interesting. Yeah, interesting, very interesting indeed. But you know, the other thing that 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 annoys me about this whole new translation is the millions of rands or dollars, call it what you like, that have been spent on printing costs. Yeah, it's just a, well, let's not even go there. I oh, mean, man. you know, you know, besides the imposition of a text which is grammatically and, you know, uh, syntax and all that kind of stuff mm. is, is obscure and doesn't work. Mm. You, you had this huge cost of printing. And, you know, I mean, I would say even the, the quality of the books that we have now mm. are not the same quality as what we had before. Absolutely. Uh, even, even the book itself. I mean, I've noticed in a few places yeah. um, where I've helped out yeah. how the books are really starting to split and yeah. break. And yeah. We never had that with those old, with the old books. No, I mean, you know, many of those not old books still have the original covers on, you know, the one mm. from 1967. The old is good enough. Then we read that in scripture somewhere. 
<laughs> the old is good. Yeah, I mean, I'm not against change. I mean, no, I think change yeah. is good. Yes, but okay. I think when you're doing change for the sake of change because yeah. you're politically trying to prove a point, yes. this is not a good reason absolutely, to change. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, All right, then. Thank you for those comments, Russell. What now? You've written a piece in the Daily Maverick about uh, hope in a time of moral rot. What's that about? Oh, yeah, no, that wasn't in the Daily Maverick. That was in the Institute's Weekly last week. Oh, I beg your um, pardon. You know, I, I, you know, Emma, I, a few weeks ago you asked me the question, and, and I really sort of struggled to answer, to say, well, you know, how do, we, how do we hope in anything given the current political situation that we live in? I mean, how do we teach young people any sense of morals when, you know, around us all the time we mm-hmm. just hear one sort of, you know, morally bankrupt story after another. Mm-hmm. And last week, of course, we had, at the beginning of the week, we had that whole Bell Pottinger business. Right. And just, and just how, um, you know, how, you know, there seemed to be no ethical standard there whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the day after that story broke, we had Andrew Singh, who, you know, who clearly had his fingers in the till, was Transnet and with ESCOM and was in bed with Brian Molefe and pinched, I don't know how much money, and was given kickbacks by the Guptas. Right. And how, how do we bring people up you know, how do we, young people, how do we give them some sense of morality when every single day in this country, you know, yeah. there's another story that bleeds and you just see how morally bankrupt things are. Yes, well, yes. the question was worrying me. And I happened to notice on Facebook uh, a young lady who was turning 13, yeah. uh, you know, well, I suppose becoming a teenager, they would say. Right, yes. And <clears throat> I saw an invitation saying, instead of a party, I want you to donate money instead of buying me a present or coming to a party i want you to donate money to reach for a dream so that i can uh, help other children to at least uh, you know realize their dreams mm. and so i i inquired a little bit about this i i i got hold of the the, the mother of this uh, young young lady and i asked her you know what's the deal and she said no well it's it sort of is a tradition in the community where they live that when you turn 13 you have to have a disco and you have to invite your whole class and she said Mommy, I really don't want to do this. She said, okay, what do you want to do? And this young lady said that. Yes. Yeah. And I thought, if this is how young people are thinking, yeah. there is hope. You Wonderful, know, yes. This is how 12-year-olds are thinking now. Mm. Maybe there is hope for the future. And so, mm. you know, those are the kind of people we need to be looking towards. Right. And, you know, the parents were telling me afterwards that this was completely unprompted. You know, that she, this came from her herself. Right. Um, so I found that a very hopeful story. And I, and I found it one... It's encouraging, and I and you know when we faced with the Guptas and and Bell Pottinger and and you know I mean you know and now this latest uh, disaster of the ANC in KwaZulu Natal, right. where you know there's so much skullduggery and and, and, and unethical behaviour and so forth. Right. Here is um, a 12 year old who, who, who thinks like that. Yeah. There's hope. Giving us hope, showing us the way to the future. And I must say, <clears throat> Reach for a Dream Foundation is an incredible foundation. And uh, nice that this young girl realizes that too. Yeah, I mean, I heard that she did quite a lot of research, right. um, you know, to find uh, something that she could have money donated to mm. and so forth, you mm. know. Um, so it was, it, was, it was rather interesting. And, and um, uh, like I say, I think that's a hopeful story. And wonderful. I think uh, our young people... Uh, may may have a better sense of moral compass than many people in leadership uh, mm. in this country across the spectrum at the moment. Uh, anyway, there we go. Well, thanks for doing that. A wonderful idea and a great uh, a great initiative on your part there, Father Russell. Okay, let's move on to the final thing that we might like to talk about. Anything new happening at the Jesuit Institute? Well, um, 
I think, uh, Father Emil, we, we, we began yesterday a publicity for uh, what we're going to be calling Spotlight.Africa, which is a new publication right. that is going to be uh, published. It's not really the Jesuit Institute per se. It's under the auspices of the Jesuit Institute, but it will be, it will be acting independently. Um, Claire Matheson is going to be the editor of that. Uh, Claire would be well known to many people in yes. the Catholic world. Right. She uh, worked for the Southern Cross for a number of years. Right. She's going to edit that online uh, platform. Uh, it's going to uh, launch pretty soon. We're just waiting for the technical aspects of the site to be sorted out. We've been working on this now for about 18 months or so. And it's going to uh, offer uh, people in Southern Africa, Catholics in Southern Africa, uh, Christians in Southern Africa, the ability to analyze and think through things that are happening around us, interpreting uh, what's happening around us in the light of you know, Christian ethics, uh, Catholic tradition, and so on and so on. It's not going to be churchy or preachy, but it's going to be a sort of analytical commentary site. It will obviously analyze and comment on news issues, um, but it's not, it's not going to be a news site per se that's going to sort of uh, have every single news story up there. But it'll be looking at significant things in Southern Africa, in the church, and also in the, um, in the broader church world, you know, uh, covering people like Pope Francis, uh, offering uh, good analysis from an African perspective on the things that he's doing and he's saying. So Spotlight Africa is set to launch in the next uh, couple of weeks, we hope, right. as soon as uh, the technical aspects have been sorted out. It's incredible how uh, these things get very... Uh, one would think that setting something like that up with all the technology we have would be something simple. Well, putting it together is something simple, but actually getting you know hosting companies and all sorts of things to... Uh, to all come together at the same time and do what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Where you, you can sort of you know, fly to the moon on your cell phone, but they can't do that. It's been incredible to watch yeah. how clunky the system can still be. Mm. And so that's going to happen soon, so we're very excited about that, yeah. it's, uh, a new project. Um, and Good. the other uh, thing is that uh, this coming uh, Saturday, I've been asked to mention, we will be uh, talking about should the church be involved in politics at Malvern Catholic Church. It's the Lay Leaders Conference, which is held annually, uh, hosted by the Department of Evangelization of the Archdiocese of uh, Johannesburg. And we will be looking at the question of the church and politics, um, which is one which is a hot potato at the moment, given the fact that uh, politicians seem to be appearing in front of bishops for blessings. Uh, So should the church be involved in politics? Uh, it looks like the church is already involved in politics. The question is, what should the church be doing in politics? Right. And that's the question we will try and pursue on Saturday at Mulva, 9.30. Anybody's invited to come to that. It's for lay leaders in the Archdiocese of Johannesburg. But as far as I can make out, anyone who wants to come is welcome. Very good. Now, thanks very much for that. I hope that's going to go well. Thank uh, you. And that's it. Anything more? Um. I can't think of anything more unless okay. I've skipped something or you've right. got something in your in your mind that um, I've uh, that slipped mind. No, no I, uh, uh, I suppose you know we know already on Radio Veritas that the good lady, um, uh, what's her oh, name? Oh, Francis Correa. Francis Correa. Will, yes, will be leaving us at the end of the month. Yes, um, yes, yes. I know that you did an interview with her last week. That's right. So yes. Francis has decided to uh, to move on, really because of family responsibility. That's the key issue. I know it's been a very difficult decision for her. Yeah. Um, so we, we will we will certainly miss Francis. She'll leave a she'll leave a gap.
Um, and we will have to, uh, as the GPS would say, we're going to have to start recalculating. That's right. Rerouting now, too. <laughs> Rerouting. There we go. Yes. All right, Father Russell, thank you very much indeed. Always lovely talking to you. Thank you. God bless you and have a wonderful day. Thank you to all the best. Thank you. There we go. That was Father Russell Pollitt, the director of the Jesuit Institute here in Johannesburg. And he was talking to us about a couple of important things, the new translations or the new uh, um, uh, ruling or what's called the motu proprio, which has been issued by the Holy Father with regard to translations of the liturgy now being um, decentralized and uh, this principle of subsidiarity kicking in here that local bishops' conferences will have a lot more say than simply uh, the Roman Curia. And then he's spoken about his little piece, which is written called Hope in a Time of Moral Rot, and then some things about what's happening this coming weekend. 35 minutes past seven. Hi, I am Father Russell Pollitt from the Jesuit Institute, and you are tuned in to Radio Veritas, where we bring you the good news for a change.